And so, you know, as that was something I was really pondering on as I've been trying to read it. I've been asking the Lord, trying to really help me get that concept of really trying to picture the real life, in color per se, story of what was happening. Has anyone ever seen like colored, colorized photos? So I saw this really cool recently done one, and it was um, someone took uh, photos. This is, I know this is fairly common, but they took photos from World War II and colorized them. And something about that just brought so much more like life into what really was going on there. You know, I saw another one. Someone took this video footage that somebody did in like the 1910s or 20s of New York City, and it was black and white footage, and they colorized it. And it's amazing just adding that bit of color how much more the story just kind of leapt up off the video. And it wasn't just anymore, oh, this is an old black and white. I mean, you can see the colors and just the textures and all the different things that went into. And so something I've been kind of wanting the Lord to show me, and I've been trying to read the Bible more as, is let me see the texturized side of the Bible. Let me see the real life, this really happened to somebody side of this thing. And I always thought Jonah was, as I started reading Jonah and trying to look at it from that perspective, at points the story gets a lot more entertaining, mostly just because you have to take into account what must have been going on for those four guys that gave Jonah a ride. That is a, that is a lift they will never forget. He is, I'm sure none of those guys ever forgot the passenger, that passenger that day. So starting off in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Joseph, or Jonah, Jonah, the son of... Uh, Amnitiah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So God said, you know, hey, I got a job for you. I want you to get up, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them something. Now Jonah, being a man of faith and of power, and a man that was following God's will perfectly, arose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Not so much. Not so much. <laughs> you know, I have to laugh because... I have to I have to imagine Jonah and I don't fully know where Jonah lines up in all the timeline of Israel's history. But there are several points throughout the Bible, and including the Bible I believe they would have had at Jonah's time, that included stuff that said how you couldn't get away from the presence of the Lord. You know, David himself even has some psalms where he refers to, I can pretty much go anywhere and I can't get away from your presence. So Jonah's first thought is I'm gonna get away from the Lord by hopping on a boat and sailing to a different city because, you know, God can't follow me on a boat. I mean, really, like, think about it. Like, Jonah hopped on a boat to run away. And, you know, we've all done different things, but I've just kind of had to chuckle about that because he really didn't want to go to Nineveh, so much to the point that he just went out of his way to buy fare to another place and travel on a boat. I mean, obviously, he didn't just get on there for free. So, I mean, but I was thinking about it. Why, why would Jonah be so adamant about wanting to go away from Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, if I remember right. And Assyria was ruthless when it came to nations. And if you ever want a fascinating study of um, just a really, I don't know what else to call it, other than a mean nation, it's, Assyria was a rough place to live, and they had a beef with Israel. So there was already, it wasn't even just a neighbor. They, Assyria and Israel had been at conflict for all, you know, had been at conflict off and on throughout the history of both nations. You can read at different points throughout other parts of the Bible where Assyria came against Israel more than once. It was there was not a lot of good, uh, a lot of good feelings between them. And when you think about it, God told 
Jonah, I want you to get up and I want you to go and preach repentance to these people. Jonah's reaction was to go the other way. Why? He didn't want them to find repentance. So this is kind of the first point I want to get on a little bit today. He didn't think they deserved God's repentance. That's a very dangerous position to take when it comes to, you know, deciding who or who does and doesn't get God's forgiveness. That is a very, well, one, that's a place none of us have the right to, you know, say. But if you think about it, Jonah not only just didn't like this area, he hated these people so much that he would rather have seen God wipe them off the face of the earth than then find repentance. And I can think about that in light of current world history. Are, and, you know, this is something I've thought of before, is are there places, you know, myself included, where I've said I'd rather just see somebody, you know, maybe not, you know, they're just too far gone or this nation is too far gone. I mean... I remember when the whole thing flared up, and been flaring up, but in the different ways it's flared up, with what's going on in the Middle East. You know? There was a lot of tempers that flared when that whole thing went down. And I mean, I was, let's see, that was 2001. I think I was seven or eight at the time. So obviously I saw it from a much different perspective than, I was making face up, sorry, am I going too young on that? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I know, 2000, ugh. okay, let's stop looking up. Anyways, uh, no, really, you know, now I saw that whole thing from a kid's perspective. I was seven, and we turned on the TV right before the second tower got hit, and again, I got to watch the whole thing live. But I saw it from a seven-year-old's perspective. Now, I know for some of you guys, you guys were obviously adults, and you saw it from a much different perspective, but I would say across the board, all of us were mad you know, or, or frustrated, or, or something, but the emotions we were feeling were not good. And I remember hearing, as this thing's escalated throughout the years, and it's gone up and down, I've heard people talk about, and including ministers talk about how, you know, those people still need God's salvation. That's right. Now, could we say that to some degree, not everyone in the Middle East, but could we say certain groups that have been out in the Middle East could probably be referred to could kind of be looked at towards America like Assyria was towards Israel. A nation that attacked them, a nation they didn't have good relations with, um, a nation that was full of conflict. You know what I'm saying? To some degree, I could say there's some similarities. Now, unfortunately, I've even seen in Christians before. I can remember even in high school when this thing, you know, obviously was still going on when I was in high school. You know, buddies of mine, me talking about, you know, do they really, you know, why don't we just go and, I remember one thing we used to always say, why don't we go and just make that place a sheet of glass? You know, you instant heat sand and it becomes glass. Well, the way you instant heat sand is high-powered explosives. You know, but really, we were, you know, we were young guys at the time. We had buddies that were getting ready to join the military, and we thought, well, there's one easy way to kind of just sum this whole thing up. But I remember there was a pastor I heard, too, and he was talking about how, you know, what about all those people over there? What about all those lost souls, you know? Sure, there's easy ways you could button this up, but what's, this, what's the eternal price of that? And I was thinking about with Jonah here. Jonah knew that God very much possessed the power to turn Nineveh into a pile of ash pretty fast. You know what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure Jonah, obviously Jonah would have heard the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah and things like that where God, you know, God wasn't affected by how big a city was to be able to destroy it. And Nineveh at the time was big. It was, I mean, this isn't a small little community. This was a massive, especially for the time period. 
this was a metroplex. This is like, you know, if I had to put it in perspective of American terms, has anyone ever been through the Dallas Fort Worth area? That metroplex? I would have, when they've described how it is, it kind of in my mind is like that. It is just this massive, far reaching city. But that's the thing I was thinking about. The first thing struck me when I read this, and then we haven't gotten very far, was Jonah's heart on this issue. Jonah was at a point with Nineveh in his own heart where he would have rather seen the city destroyed than find salvation. And again, that's just, that's not a healthy place for our heart to be. And that was just something the Lord was dealing with me. Is where, do you, where do we get places in our own hearts where we might, you know, let anger or let frustration build up and start letting it isolate us from either a person, a group, someone, you know, from whatever, but we let that kind of wall get built up and we just kind of start becoming indifferent and unemotional. You know, it can happen in families, marriages, between even church members, between maybe different churches even. You know, we, we let that wall build up and we start getting to a point that we just don't care about that other group, that other person. Now, again, this is a little more of an extreme scenario where Jonah's wishing essentially God's wrath and their ultimate destruction. So, a little more extreme maybe than most of us feel towards somebody we've kind of isolated or walled off, but still that kind of applies. You know, not letting our heart get hardened, and Jonah's did. To a point that he took his own money and ran the other direction. As anybody knows, if God tells you to go one way and you go the other, it's not usually the best path to take. I mean, really, you know, like, really here, I mean, because I can say for myself, I've had moments, and I'm, I would imagine there's at least a few of you here that are probably the same, where God has told you to do one thing, you did the other, and it didn't work out as good. Right. I can think of one right now because we still drive it. Um, you know, I, and I'll just pick on myself here a little bit. When we bought our Jeep, I 100% bought that Jeep out of emotion. I, at the time, said, oh, yeah, I think I have peace about this. You know, I think it feels right. Really what it was was, ooh, shiny. I mean, it's just, it was what I liked. It was four-wheel drive, it was big, black vehicle, looked cool. I was shopping like a typical guy. Looks really cool. My wife, on the other hand, being much more practical and, uh, stuff was like, well, honey, what's the gas mileage? What's the, you know, this? How old is it? You know, loans? You know, practical, practical things. Um, I was like, hey, it's got four wheel drive. It works really cool. It's boxy. I like bigger vehicles usually. I won't, although I will say this, I like our little car. I really like our little car. <laughs> but I grew up around big vehicles, so pickup trucks, SUVs, all that. I like those. I always liked whenever I got to take our company vehicle out once in a while to run errands for the company. Because it's a big F-150, Ford F-150. It's just kind of nice. You sit up high, it's real big. My wife needs those kind of bigger, boxier vehicles. She, she usually prefers cars and stuff. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is, um, I, I made that call and we probably put almost what we paid into it in repairs. Now, I don't believe that was God's best for us to buy a vehicle that we would turn around and invest that much money. I mean, we all agree, like, really, like, you know, that's that's not God's best, to have to invest that much into a car. I'm sure we've all bought in something that later on we're kind of like, ah, oh, that's, 
not, not my greatest, greatest shopping experience. I see a couple of the wives looking at their husbands, so. Yeah, see some looks going around. But, you know, we, we did our own thing. And unfortunately, sometimes there's a cost to it. In Jonah's case, he did his own thing. He bought a ticket, paid whatever amount it was going to take to get to Tarshish, and took off. So picking up on verse 3, it says, Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa. So he had to travel somewhere, it sounds like. So first he had to travel somewhere that had boats. So there's one expense. Then he had to buy passage on the boat to wherever he was going next. Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind of the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Now, one thing to think about, when we think about these guys ran into a storm, these were sailors by trade. These were not guys that were usually too scared by a little water or some wind or a storm. You know what I'm saying? If you were a sailor, it just kind of comes with the territory. I mean, I've talked to guys who are in the Navy. It's kind of the same thing still today. If you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, there are storms. It's just what comes with it. You know, there's not really a way around it. But this storm that came up was so bad that one, it was rattling all these hardened, tough sailors. I mean, you can imagine, these are not really, really weak pushover guys. These are, you know, your big, kind of gruff, you know, these, these are rough and tumble kind of guys, you know. But it also said that the ship was about to be broken up. And these ships were probably, I mean, this probably wasn't a rinky-dink boat. Again, this was a massive storm that they started throwing cargo. So they started taking financial loss at it. They were like, look, we just got to survive this thing. So they started throwing the cargo overboard. I mean, it was just a bad deal. And they and all these guys became afraid and started crying out each to And every man cried out to his God. What's interesting about that that I found is I started realizing these, all, these guys were not probably all Israeli at least then. Or at least they all didn't follow the God of Israel. Because it said every man cried out to his God. And threw cargo on board to lighten the load. It says in verse in the rest of verse five, but Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. I'm a really heavy sleeper. That's heavy sleeping. When that ship is about to sink and you're asleep, I feel like Dana's contemplating that I might be able to do that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But that, that's heavy sleeping. So the captain, so the captain came to him and said, "What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, that we will not perish." So I mean, it was so bad that I mean, the captain's waking Jonah, one of the passengers, up, and I'm assuming if there were any other passengers, them too, and saying, "You start praying too. We're just going to rush the roulette. Everybody's God and see who answers." Like they're just doing a roll call of, "Okay, what well, God, God do you follow? Okay, pray to Him. You follow, you know, pray to Him." They're just. They're trying to find whatever means to keep this thing afloat. And they said to one another, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. 
And they cast the lot, and it fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble coming upon us? What is your occupation? What, where do you come from, and where, what is your country? One part I laugh about this is, obviously, I guess they didn't ask you the same questions getting on a boat back then that they do now, because I feel like this would all be... I mean, I've never been on a cruise, but this all feels like basic information they would ask you. I mean, heck, you can't go into a lot of places today without filling out this kind of information to begin with anyways. And Jonah said, um, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the, mean, and the men were exceedingly afraid and said, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. But you can't have my instrument. He told them that part of the story, but none of them asked any questions beyond that? Like you're running away from your God and you're using our boat. I don't know. Again, I wasn't there, but to me that's a bit of a red flag. Oh, hey, some guy's running away from his God and probably going to make him angry. Should we put him on our boat? Yeah, that's fine. Like, again, just have a little fun with the story. But just some of those things I've wondered, like the real life, what happened? Like, how did that really go down? That by the time that they got out there, they had no idea who he was, where he was from. What he did, but they didn't know that he probably had just made God angry because he was running away from him. So, and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may calm down? For the sea was growing more temptatious. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me in the sea. Then the sea will calm, and I, and I know that this great temptation is because of me. So he just told them, look, okay, I'm admitting to it. This is my fault. You know, I've, I've I've done wrong by this. So, and they go, okay, well, what do we need to do? Because we don't want to die. You know, we don't want to die here because you messed up. And he says, throw me into the ocean. Now, I don't imagine Jonah would have been that hard for any of these guys to pick up and throw in the ocean. Again, these are all professional sailors, probably decent-sized guys. I can't imagine Jonah's any larger than any of them. So I don't feel like this would have been much of a task for them. But he goes, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. I've just wondered, like, why did they go ahead and try rowing? Like Jonah said, just throw them in the ocean, it'll all calm down. But they turned around and said, let's just try rowing back to land one more time. I'm not, again, I'm not exactly sure what the thought process was, I'm assuming they didn't get very far because they could figure that they could row back to land better than just throw Jonah overboard. But they did. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So I guess in a way, maybe this didn't answer the question. I mean, it just, it, I think for the fact is they figured throwing Jonah overboard was just a death sentence for him. I mean, again, this storm was so severe, they imagined probably that Jonah wasn't going to last very long out in the middle of the storm. I mean, if nothing else, if on the way down when he fell, if he didn't hit the water right, that could have done it because depending on how tall the ship was. And when he's in the water, if the water ran him up against the ship, I mean, right there, I mean, there's, so... You know, these guys are, but the one thing they're saying is don't charge us with his death. You know, if it's they, these guys are like, look, if we throw him overboard, we don't want to be held responsible for, you know, he's the one that messed up. He's the one that, and it's kind of interesting how sometimes when 
when, when Jonah sinned and didn't follow God, he drug other people into this mess with him. That's right. Not that these guys had done anything wrong, but they got drugged into the mess as well. How often is it that our actions, especially when we're not following God, drag somebody else into it? That's right. Let's go back into that. I'm going to go back into that little scenario real quick with that Jeep. My wife let me make the final call on that Jeep. And make a great call on that Jeep because, again, like I said, it turned out to be a bit of a lemon. Ironically enough, now it's finally starting to work after all these repairs. But it wasn't a great call on my part. But she's had to deal with some of the issues that have come with it since then. She's had to work on our budget because it's used up more gas. She's had to do other things. She's had to, you know, help adjust, you know, work around the schedule while we had to drop the car for repairs. But I still had to go to work and just all these different things. Um, all the times the car randomly stopped because of that one piece that was wrong with it. It's just these different things. But you know what happened? My decision still affected her. Right. My decision still affected Amy. Right. How often is that? That, you know, we make a decision and there's always going to be good and bad repercussions of it. We make the right decision, there's good things that happen. We make the wrong decision, there's bad things that happen. But so often, our decisions have very little to deal with one person. You know, this is something I didn't really ever fully realize this as a husband when I got married. And I'm still learning it now that sometimes, as a husband, you have to really be careful because really, sometimes the smallest things can have huge effects. It's not stuff that you're wanting. It's not even that you're trying to hurt somebody's feelings or you're trying to do the wrong thing. But just sometimes as, as guys... And this is something we've been reading this book, and it's something that the book talks about. As guys, sometimes we're very good at this. We find we find a target, and we aim at it. And we become very focused on that one thing. While that's good, in some scenarios, you know, to, to be able to lock in on something. The problem is, is that we become kind of disconnected from everything else when you become tunnel vision. You know, as everyone, I mean... I'm assuming everyone here has been on some type of a long road trip, and you kind of get that tunnel vision when you're on the road. You know, you're just staring down. Anybody ever gone through Kansas? Yes. Kansas is a great example. I'm going to just laugh because we're going to Colorado this next week, so. Drive it at you know, night. <laughs> hey, you're, no joke. <laughs> really. Um, it should be about five. Yep. And it's, that's the thing is. When we drive through Kansas, it is just, it is not hard to like just keep staring right ahead and just to kind of, because there is just nothing, you know. And, and, but that's the thing, you become tunnel vision. Well, what happens when you get tunnel vision? You stop paying attention to everything going on around you. Exactly. Um, my dad's a driver by trade, and this is something, he, he did my driver's ed. So I took, I took driver's ed from a UPS driver. So... It was quite a driver's ed course. I mean, it was it was there was a lot that went into that. He and he would quiz me off and on, and he brought like he even showed me one time something from his work that they had the drivers carry, and he would quiz me on that. <laughs> so you know, it was quite a it was quite a little thing. But that's one thing he said. He goes, you can't become tunnel vision, and that's the the problem is is that we get we get tunnel vision, and we forget. And we don't think about what our actions have an effect on others. Jonah got so tunnel vision on not wanting to have to go to Nineveh that he didn't think about the repercussions of running away from God, getting on a boat that other people were on, and how they might get drugged into that mess as well. Just because they were around him. That's all, that's all those guys did. 
they were on the same boat as Jonah. That's what I did. And that's just something interesting that, you know, in our, in our Christian walk and in our families and in our marriages and everything, how do we not let ourselves become tunnel visioned and become distracted? And I can say as a guy, it's not easy. It, it's, it's, or it's, yeah, it's, it's not easy to stay focused or to stay alert. Again, as guys, we're very one-tracked. And as most people know, women are not. They are very, I, I, it's really impressive to watch a woman's brain work. Because there can be a dozen things in the room going on. And she can stay actively present to all of them. I'm doing good if I'm on two things at a time. <laughs> my wife will tell you this. I can do really good at one thing at a time. Just give me my checklist. I'm okay. The minute we start jumping beyond that. I, I just don't do well. I don't do well beyond maybe two things at a time. Work is one exception. At my job, I can usually kind of do more than one thing at a time, but beyond that, I'm pretty pretty one thing at a time. Dan, on the other hand, can have the cook, can have dinner going, can have Amy, can have something she's talking about, and she can stay alert in the whole scenario and not miss a beat. And you know, that's the thing, is that's how we need to be in our Christian walk, is staying alert and active to God and not letting it and this was a little bit of a deviation from what I was originally talking about but just uh, some kind of my heart you know staying active and alert in our relationship with God and not letting it become television either yes. you know not letting it become Sunday church where okay we go to church we go home and work for a week we go to church we go home and work for a week we go to church we go home you know that's a very repetitive you know, you can church can get very repetitive, and that's where church becomes sometimes. You know, where, where people start talking about church becoming dead or dying or something like that. Is when church gets too repetitive, it just becomes. And you know, we do just enough to have church. You know, I've seen this in different churches where the church kind of got to kind of end point about things. You know, this is how we've always done. This is what we do. Whatever else. And so it's just keeping things alive. Again, that was a little bit of a deviation, but praise God. Um, getting back to what we were talking about. So they picked up, in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices to the Lord and took vows. A little bit of a humorous point here that I was telling Dana that kind of made me laugh. I've always wondered how they offered sacrifices to God on a wooden boat. Burnt offerings on a wooden boat. You gotta be, I'm assuming Dan, I mean Dan we were talking about this. You know, they probably had some spot, obviously like for food. Somebody had a spot to cook. Obviously they made a spot, they didn't just burn the ship, but still I was just picturing that. I'm like, these guys were so rattled by this thing that they didn't even wait to get home to like straighten things out. They did this thing right there on the boat, no wasting time. And that's the thing is how often is it when, when something's happened in our lives that that's when we all of a sudden go, you know, it's like this jerking awake. You know, has anyone ever been like falling asleep and something happens and you just kind of startle awake? How often is that in life where we have that same thing happen? We're going about through our lives and something happens and all of a sudden we like wake up and it's like this, Oh my gosh, I need to do this, and I need to get this straight. You know, people talk about that even in, in homes and in families and marriage. And 
where it's just, you become this lulled kind of, uh, what else caught me to the zombified, you just kind of, and then you wake up and it's like, oh my gosh, what is, you know, what is happening? You know, people talk about how, how they turn around and all of a sudden their kids are grown up. You know, and I, and I know that happens to all of us in some way where, you know, we all of a sudden just realize, man, you know, I look at Amy and I go, she was walking into church this morning. I just kind of had to pause there and watch. Just kind of take a deep breath. <laughs> because I remember when we first brought her in and, you know, she was newborn and just, you know, fit right here. And I'm just sitting there, you know, holding her and she just fits right there. And I'm watching, she's just walking into church and I just was like, okay, the last two years gone. Yeah. You know, I know for all of you guys, a lot of you guys have grandkids and great grandkids, and I can't imagine. I mean, it's been kind of a moment for me as having one kid, and you know, we're having one on the way. But I you know for some of you guys, I'm sure it's just the same or harder where you're having grandkids and great grandkids, and you're just watching it. And so it's a great thing, you know, you're excited for it, but there's this like, wow. But. You know, it's, it's living your life awake. You know, some of the times when I think about it, some of the times when I've, even in like, in, in marriage or at work or at wherever, the times I've noticed that I haven't been doing as well are times when I let myself get lulled to sleep by just the repetitiveness of life. And these men had a wake-up call. They, they got they got a wake-up call, and they answered. I mean, they, you know, they... they they offered sacrifices and took vows, which I'm assuming is probably something along the lines of repentance. I'd have to say this a little more, but you know, whatever they did, they that day they changed something. They took these vows, which means they were saying that we're going to do something different. And you know, sometimes it's just like that. Sometimes something happens in life and it just rattles us awake. You know? And it's it's trying to, I would say in a way, you, you want to live your life so you don't have to have a ton of those. You don't have to have God constantly waking you up and saying, hey, you know, what about your walk with me? You know, and same thing with a marriage or a family. You don't want to have to constantly have somebody going, hey, you know, wake up. You know, and I mean, I'm, I'm not great at this either. I mean, I'm just kind of speaking from the but this is something I work on. I, I'm one of those people, I'm very good at dropping into a routine. If I can get a routine going, I'm very comfortable in it. And at points, I'm also very boring because I like dropping into a routine. I'm okay with, I get up, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I come home, I do this, I do that, and I go to bed. Because it's easy. The problem with routines is they're very manageable. But they're also very boring. And they're also very dull in a sense that there's not a lot of life and excitement in a routine. After a while, well, again, think about how we use the word, word routine. Oh, it's a routine this, it's a routine that. It's very, nobody gets excited about routine. It doesn't even sound exciting. You ever said the word routine? Routine. It doesn't sound exciting. But, you know, that's the thing is, these guys got a wake-up call. So did Jonah. I mean, I feel like Jonah probably got the biggest wake-up call out of this story, and he's about to get more of one. But that's the thing is, you know, and again, getting off a little bit on my notes or my thought, but not letting ourselves become asleep in what we're doing. And so in verse 17, it says, Now the Lord, chapter 17, Now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'll tell you one thing. I don't know if the guys actually saw that happen or not. Like, 
I have to assume to some degree Jonah floats, you know, like most of us. He was trying to keep his head above water. If I was a sailor, and I just threw the guy in the ocean, and the water stopped freaking out, like, from what it sounds like, the storm settled down once Jonah was off the boat. You look down, and all of a sudden, you have to imagine somebody was watching Jonah. Like, they didn't just throw him off and leave. I mean, people were looking back trying to see Jonah. If you saw a giant fish swallow the guy, really, how would you feel about this guy now? Like, let's, let's go through what the sailors have experienced of Jonah. Some guy walks up to the ship, to their ship in the stock, and says, Hey, I'm running away from God. Can I use your boat? Sure. He gets on board. They get out to sea. Giant storm comes up, tries to tear the ship in half. They realize it's the new guys. Okay? What do you do? I'm going to throw you off. We're going to throw you overboard. Okay? They throw him overboard. Storm comes down. Now what happens? They're watching him, and a giant fish comes up and eats him. Can you imagine what it must have been going through these sailors? I'm sure these guys caught fish for food. Like you're out on you're out on the sea all day, you're gonna need rations. Well, the you know the sea is full of food, so they probably caught fish. Can you imagine what it was like for all these fishermen and sailors to watch the fish eat the guy instead of the guy eat the fish? Like for anybody that's been fishing, I was pondering that yesterday. Going, I was just casting out my line. I'm just sitting there fishing, going, what would I do if I just watched? There was a guy actually out on a kayak at one point. So they go, what would I do if I just watched a fish eat? <laughs> I'd probably stop fishing for starters. Yeah. Because I don't know if I want that thing anywhere near me. Yeah. <laughs> I have to imagine those guys must have rode a little faster after after that, because that probably was. I mean, think of what kind of a fish could swallow a full-size man whole, and that Jonah could live in its stomach. This was a massive. I'm assuming something. I mean, I've always seen people say a whale. In my mind, that's what makes sense. Like, just in size, this had to be some type of a whale. But again, just to watch that. I cannot imagine when these guys got back to land and walked into the nearest tavern or pub or wherever and said, and they're all looking freaked out, and they're like, have I got a story for you? <laughs> Let me tell you. So how was your ship, how was your adventure on the, you know, how was, how was your guys' trip? Let me tell you. <laughs> Again, it's, and it, doesn't it make the Bible fun when you kind of take a minute and just sure. open it up and think, what would have really been going on for these guys right now? You know, it just it makes the Bible so alive when you just take a minute and think about what was really going on and what these guys must have gone through. <laughs> and now we're going to cut back over to Jonah because how about you? I don't know how I feel about being eaten alive by a fish. I cannot imagine the ride that was. Like passing through this fish's digestive tract had to be quite a ride. Yeah. No, no, let's just have a little fun here. Can you imagine? You're floating in the water. The next thing you know, a giant mouth is suddenly all around you. And it goes black. Like, has anyone actually think about this? We went on this ride. We went to Six Flags. You talk about dropping suddenly into the dark. This ride at Six Flags, out of nowhere, just drops you down a hole. 
It's, yeah, ooh. I had taken the ride once before. The first time I took the ride, it caught me off guard. The second time I went with Dana, I already knew about it, and I was, I guess I should have actually probably warned her about it. <laughs> but the way this ride works, it's, I think it's called the coal mine or something like that. But this one part, you're sitting in what looks like a mine cart. You go into this dark tunnel. Within two seconds of going, two or three seconds of going into that dark tunnel, it suddenly just goes straight down. You can't see anything. It's a, it's a shipping container, I think, they use for it. A couple of shipping containers welded together. But you can't see anything. It goes pitch black for a couple of seconds, and then it just suddenly drops you. And no light until you drop, go back up, and then come out the other side. That's when you finally get some light again. It's a terrifying experience. So just imagine for a moment, Jonah in the ocean. Now, ocean, you can feel something moving in the water. If anyone's ever been in like a pool and there's people swimming around, you feel water displacement. I wonder if Jonah felt any water displacement. <laughs> As a large whale, will assume, swam in his exact direction. But again, just to take that moment in, he's in the water. He's probably already a little freaked out himself because being thrown over a boat is probably not exactly a fun experience. Suddenly, a whale eats him, and he is now bouncing through this whale in pitch black, wondering what's going on. Again, I just have to imagine that Jonah was in for quite a ride, and Jonah prayed to the Lord. It said he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. For 72 hours, he was in this thing. I cannot imagine what that had to be like. 72 hours in pitch black, inside a fish, which probably smelled like fish. I mean, yeah, Jonah probably, whew, I bet you Nineveh, I bet you the guards didn't bother Jonah just from the smell alone. He walked up to Nineveh and they just let him through because they're like, we're just not dealing with this. But he says, and Jonah prayed to God from the belly's fish and said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. I cried out from the belly of Sheol, and, or out of the belly of Sheol I cried, which I believe Sheol means death, too. I'm not sure. I think that's what Hell. Okay. And you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All, the, all your billows and all your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I look again towards your holy temple. The waters surround me, even my soul. The deeps are closed around me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down into the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up. You have brought me up. You brought up my life, sorry, from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And, I pray, and my prayer went up to you and your holy temple. Those who regard, us, regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. I'll tell you right there, that last line, that is a good line. If you ever want to tell somebody something about life, just tell them <laughs> salvation is of the Lord. Yes. But think about what Jonah just did. He just said, look, God, I messed up. I have to imagine, I don't, I have to imagine, like, we laugh about this a little bit, and, you know, it's kind of fun to kind of unpack the story a little bit and really picture what, 
slowing down. But also think about what was Jonah probably going through emotionally by the time he got there. Three days, in, you know, we, we consider isolation a form of punishment. You know, when you're in prison, and if you, for some reason you mess up even further, they'll put you in isolation. People were not meant to be isolated. We were talking about this actually at work. I was talking to somebody about this. I started sharing with them about how, you know, people aren't made to be isolated. People aren't built for isolation. People need each other. When God made man in his own image, he made a man, a woman, and he said be fruitful and multiply. And he instituted family. Because family was supposed to be a bond. And the cool thing is now family, you know, obviously because it's in the world, families haven't always stayed together. And sometimes family isn't even someone you're biologically related to. Or, or even somebody directly in line. I know plenty of people that have been mothers and fathers that had no blood relation to the person they were a mother or father to. How, how many mothers have opened up their doors to people that were not their own kids? You know what I'm saying? Um, I was talking to somebody. I had an old coworker of mine. And he used to always talk about. He grew up in a. Um, he grew up in a. Uh, in a, I think it was in Louisiana is what he said. But really, he was from like really deep south. And he talked about how in his neighborhood, his, I think it was his mother or his grandmother, was like the neighborhood mom. She was the one that all the kids went to. They were hungry, they went to her. She'd always have something cooking. If they were thirsty, she'd always have something cold in the fridge. If they had questions, she had answers. If they had a problem, she tried to help bring a solution. If there was conflict, she was the mediator. You know, she, was, she really was that central point. And that's the thing is, family has always been important. And people have always found a way to make family. Again, we're not built for isolation. So Jonah is sitting here three days a night in complete isolation in a jail cell that I couldn't imagine the smell. And I think it really probably, probably just really broke him and rattled him. Because he doesn't know what's going to happen next. You see, we read the story of Jonah and we know, oh yeah, well the fish just sped him up later. Jonah had no idea what was going to happen. He probably, I, I have to imagine some degree, he probably figured he was just going to die in this fish and just in the bottom of the ocean. That was going to be it. But the one thing I think is cool about how he did this is that he cried out to the Lord. But not only did he say, God, yes, I've messed up, but he also kept saying how God was faithful. You know, people talk about how God is an angry God. And I've heard a lot of people preach on this before. Like, God is this angry, kind of mean person. And people especially go, well, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament God. And I'm like, look what God really did even then. Nineveh, for example, in this story, God clearly said Nineveh is doing wrong. Nineveh's got no right for salvation. But God still wanted to send them salvation. And he sent one of his own people to go do it. You know, we always look at Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. There are so many types and shadows of Jesus in the Bible. Jonah, in a way, was one of them. Why? A sinful nation that no longer deserved God's mercy. But God said, I'm going to send someone to tell them to repent. Think about how many times in the Bible God's done that. God has always been in the business of restoring his family. 
his family's got a lot of kids. That's right. And a lot of problems. That's right. You know, you want to talk about a problem family. You know, if you think your family's got problems, take a look at God's family. Take a look at what some of his kids have done. You know what I'm saying? And, or his creation, you know what I mean? If we just look at it literally from Adam and Eve, and we say God started it, and then there was Adam and Eve, and it went down from there. Think of some of the people that have not lived their life for God, that God still created, you know what I mean? But that chose the wrong way. I mean, I cannot imagine the heartbreak once God's gone through. Just watching what humanity's done to each other. You know, I mean, God's always wanted family. You know, and, and God's always had a soft spot in his heart for family. They have widows and orphans. Multiple times in the Bible, God talks about the widow and the orphan and those without family, and he's always trying to bring them back, give them a place. You know, people always say, you know, I, I know a lot of kids who don't have a dad. I've got buddies that don't know their dad or don't have a great relationship with their dad or with their dad and their mom. You know, they may not, you know, they just didn't grow up in a good home. But they found that they could turn to God to be that person. And then God usually brought somebody into their life that could be that person. You know? You may have not had a great mom and dad. You may, you may feel isolated. Let me say this. God isn't going to leave you isolated. That's right. I, I don't know if anyone today is feeling isolated. <laughs> you know, this is what is great about church. This is what's great about church. That's this kids are the one of the best parts of church. Let's get an amen. Kids are one of the best parts of church. Because look how much life is right there. The joy. The joy. You know what? Right now she's not stressed about the economy. She's not stressed about politics. She's not stressed about COVID or anything else. You know what she is? She's happy. She's happy. I mean, she is just full of joy. We really need to make sure we take time to think about that. God talks about little kids. He said, let the kids come unto me. You know why? Because kids have God's heart. Kids have God's kind of joy. Kids have God's kind of faith. Little kids don't worry about if there's going to be dinner. Because mommy's got it. Or daddy's got it. You know, I never had to worry about whether or not we were going to have money. Because my dad went out and worked his tail off every day. I hope he sees this because I, I never tell him to thank him about it. My dad worked his butt off. I mean, my dad was a hard-working man. He still is. To this day, my dad is a hard-working man. And I hope I can live up to his example. We never had to worry about that. We never had to worry about having clothing. Or food or any of that. Because our father, my dad, and my mom took care of us. Same thing. Go back to this isolation thing. God will take care of you. If you're feeling isolated, alone, maybe physically right now you are. I know a lot of us are coming out of this whole COVID thing. We had to stay home. It's been hard on people. Although for us, it was actually kind of a good thing. Because it got, us, you know, it got me home more. So it worked out. But I know for a lot of people, there's been this isolation problem. I've seen dozens of articles about people talking about how people have dealt with isolation issues because all of a sudden they couldn't go anywhere. But if you're feeling it, you know, isolated right now, 
and I don't know if this is for somebody in the room or maybe for somebody watching the courtroom later, God's not going to leave you isolated. You, you don't have to feel isolated when you're with God. Because God's not just some deity you're praying to. God is, God's your father. <coughs> you know, I know not everyone's here has had a great relationship with their father, or maybe had a father in their life. But God's your father. And he loves you. There's a little kid. You know, and, and like any good parent, any good parent does discipline their kids. But you know what? You know what I know my parents more for than their discipline? And don't get me wrong, my parents disciplined me and they were not afraid of it. They weren't afraid that if I did wrong, to discipline. But you know what else they weren't afraid to do either? They weren't afraid to love me. They weren't afraid to see me where I was at. Growing up, I had some different issues. And some of those have carried into my adult life, but I've had different issues, like most of us, at, at some point as a kid. And you know, some of those issues didn't make me an easy kid to love. And frankly, I looked at some of my other kid buddies' parents, and I was like, if I had different parents, I don't know if they would have stuck it out. My mom has. My dad has. And, and same, I've got, you know, one of my little brothers, he's got, he's got some issues too, that he's working on. And my parents haven't given up on him either. Even at points when I've at points felt like doing it. I hate to admit that as his brother, but at points I felt like but they just, just like that, God doesn't leave us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Even Jonah in the belly of a fish, however many, I'd be curious to look how, up how far whales can dive down. I know they can get pretty deep into the water. Even that deep in the ocean, in the middle of a whale's belly, Jonah wasn't alone. God was right there with him. He never left him. He never forsake him. He was right there with him. And God still heard his prayer. And so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah on dry land. Again, I cannot imagine what Jonah smelled like coming out of this thing. It was, it was probably a rough time to be, again, it was probably a little bit of a rough time to be Jonah. The one thing I've always wondered is it never tells you where Jonah got dropped off at. But clearly wherever Jonah dropped, got dropped off at, it was somewhere where he could be sustained. Because three days and three nights in the belly of a fish... There's probably not a great dining menu down there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if Jonah had food or water for three days, but if not, then God, wherever God parked him at, when he finally had that fish spit him up, it was close enough to something where he could get food and water. Yeah. And I mean, look at that. God's provision. Even in Jonah's failure to obey, God still looked after him. Right. He's still alive. Through all this, he should have been dead several times now through this story. But he's not. Because God looked out for him. Now Jonah, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Arise, go to Nineveh with an exceedingly great, which, or wait, sorry, and preach to it the message that I tell you. At this point, obviously, Jonah's not, at this point, Jonah was just like, okay, you know, it was, there was no argument left in Jonah, I don't think. I mean, he was, I think he was done arguing. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So it took you three days to walk from one end of Nineveh to the other. That's a big city. I don't know how long it takes. To put it in perspective, my brother really likes walking. My brother, he really likes walking. And I've seen him cover some distance on foot. He just likes going out for these long walks. 
I mean, I don't remember how far him and my dad went time. They went for a walk, and I forgot how long they covered, but it was 10, 12 miles. I'm trying to remember. It was a really long walk, but they covered it in part of a day. So to put that, let's just take that number of perspective. Think how long Nineveh was. They would take you three full days to walk from one end of Nineveh to the other. Again, that is, I mean, I have to imagine, they probably used chariots and buggies and all that in town. Just because three days, I mean, so it means it might take you a day on horse to cover that city one end to another. A massive city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Now if you notice, Jonah didn't really have to fight them much. When God sends you somewhere, he will, he will show up. You know, I've said this once and I've said this before and I'll say it again. When God, when you give God a stage, he will show up. I've seen it so many times on the missions field. We were in Germany one time, and it's fascinating to watch things in Germany. People walk everywhere in Berlin. Um, it's, it's really, it's quite a different concept from how typical American environment is. Maybe like New York. You kind of look how New York is, like Times Square, where everybody's, well, not now, but normally everybody's walking about. That's how Berlin was. We went there, and you have to have these special permits, and there's a bunch of stuff to go through, but our, our, our contact there got all ready. But we went there to do skits. There was one point, our little church skit, essentially, had an audience, roughly, we had someone kind of counting for us, of about 400 people. These were passerbys on the street. That's all this was. So we, we didn't plan an event. This was, we were doing street ministry. We did a street skit, 400 people. That's how busy the city is. That we just had random passerbyers stop, and it totaled 400. We, the police got involved because apparently our crowd was so big that we stopped the trains from moving. Well, when the local trams stopped moving, I was like, hey, when they told us that, we were like, praise God, you know. Trains stopped moving. Hey, all you guys in the train, just watch. You know, listen. But that's the thing. God set a stage. We went, we followed God's instruction, and we had people show up. When I was in the DR, same thing. We went, we set a stage, God showed up. Why? Because people will not admit it, but people are hungry for the gospel. And really what they're hungry for is they're hungry for a hope. Because right now, and you know what, this is a great time to talk about hope. Because right now people are all over the place on how they feel about the state of the world right now. And we have hope. And that's the thing. These people were obviously looking for something because they just immediately just started saying, you're right, what do we do? It says, the word came to the king of Nineveh. So, I mean, this went from the lowest guy to the head honcho, the top of the chain. And he laid aside his robes, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by a decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Neither man, nor beast, nor herd, nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat anything to, um, or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to the Lord. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if the Lord will relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Wouldn't that be something cool to see in America? Right. 
Like right now, we got a lot of stuff going on with different governors taking different reactions to this whole COVID thing. Some good, some not. I don't know a ton about Missouri politics, so I don't try to say much about it. But I will say it seems like, for the most part, I've liked how Governor Parson has handled or tried to handle you know, this situation, especially in comparison to some other guys. How the governors have handled this, again, I haven't stayed super up to it, but the fact that right now this we're open, we're having church, and other churches and other states are having to fight for it. I mean, you know, Louisiana, I think it is, or Georgia, they're having to sue the government over it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're, we seem to be in a state where churches do receive some layer of, you know, importance. And, you know, and we need to thank God for that, because it's a blessing, you know, that that our state still, you know, has recognition for churches, for the most part. I, I don't know about even on a CELO, maybe marriage, but I can at least say it seems like our state as a whole has tried to, you know, get the churches back open. But wouldn't this be cool to see that? Could you imagine, like, a Governor Parson or a president putting out something like this? This is a nation we need to fall on our knees and call back to God. Oh man, wouldn't that be something great? Oh man, I'm excited thinking about that. Could you imagine that being on the morning news? Like, I, like sometimes I watch Fox in the morning, and they always have like a, they're you know breaking news. Could you imagine breaking news? President calls on nation to fall, you know, to turn to God. Right? Ooh, I just get excited thinking about something like that, right? To see, to see God's hand hit this nation like that, where people are just turning to God because it's just they realize what's going on. And it says, Then God saw their works, that they turned away from the evil ways, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You know, people always say again, the God, the God of the Old Testament's angry. Clearly, he's not. And he handled things different back then, but he was still a merciful God. Because he said, I'm not going to do it. It wasn't that he couldn't do it. I mean, you know, get that right. There was no question of his power to do it. But he said, I choose mercy. But it did, now this is the part where I just wanted to wrap it up with, but something I wanted to think about for all of us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. God said, I'm not going to destroy this nation. And Jonah got angry at God. Um... So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was it not what I said when I, well, wait, yeah, was this, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I previously led to, fled to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and merciful, and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents doing harm. What I love is that Jonah's telling God this in an angry tone. So picture what he's telling God. He's breaking the monitors, it's like, you see, God, I knew you'd do this. You're such a nice guy. You're so merciful. I knew this. See, this is why I left for Tarshish. Like, can you imagine Jonah sitting here getting mad at God, telling him what a nice guy he is. Why are you so nice? Like, just picture. I don't mean to sound silly, but don't he? Doesn't it kind of sound weird to be mad at God for being such a nice guy? You know? I can tell you if this was Israel we were talking about, Jonah wouldn't be laughing or wouldn't be mad, you know, that God was so nice. But it's because how was his heart still towards Nineveh? He went and did what God told him to do, but clearly his heart 
he hadn't changed his heart towards Nineveh. He had changed his heart towards running away from God because he realized that was not a great decision by any means. Um, but he hadn't changed his heart towards Nineveh. Therefore, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, at this point, it just feels like he's throwing a fit. He's telling God, I'd rather be dead than see Nineveh live. Again, the heart issues that are going on here, that is just hatred for another nation, frankly. To want to die rather than see another nation, people of another nation live, that is just, a, you just, that's not right. You know what I'm saying? That was a heart issue that Jonah had. And, you know, one we all need to be careful of, you know, because we might have people that we feel like, you know what? I don't want to see them do well. Has anybody ever had somebody do something to them pretty severe? I mean, I've had people do something pretty severe to me before. And how easy is it to say, and I will admit, I've said this to God before, I don't care what happens to them. You ever had that moment with somebody? They wrong you so much that you're like, you know what? I don't care. They can go fall off the face of the earth for all I care. Has anyone ever felt that way about your spouse? You know, where you're like, maybe not that quite that dramatic, but, you know, where you're like, you know what, I don't really care, guys. I don't like them. At least I don't like them. You know, have you ever had that moment where it's like, God, I don't know if I really like them right now. You know, or people, you know, family. I've done that with family. I can tell you right now, I've had moments that I've told God about my brothers. Yeah, I don't really like them right now. And I can tell you for a fact they've told God at some point, I don't like him. <laughs> My brother one time, I was so bad in high school, my brother walked up to my mom and said, what planet is he from? <laughs> there's a there's a four-year gap between me and the next brother in line, and I believe it was him. But one of my brothers went to my mom and said, what planet is he from? <laughs> I was a rough guy in high school. I was really rough. But that's the thing here. It's like, God saves the nation, and Jonah gets mad and tells God he's being too nice to this nation. He's being too nice saving them. And he goes on to say, and the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? God turns around and says, now hold on. Why are you getting mad? So Jonah went out of the city. I'm assuming just kind of stormed out. And sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under the shade. Till he might see what would become of the city. So he wanted to watch. He, I'm assuming he still somehow was hoping that Nineveh would like blow up. Yeah, we'd like mess up. Maybe somebody would do something wrong and God would just be like, fine. Or something. I don't know. Maybe he thought he could hold his breath and God would just do what he wanted to do. I mean, really, like, he, he went out and built a shelter and decided to sit and wait until see what happens to the city. And, he, and the Lord prepared a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might, might be shaved for his head to deliver him out of his misery. So Jonah was gr very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a venomous east wind, and the sun beat down Jonah's head, so he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah just has a bad attitude, apparently, about life. It's the second time in a day, in like 24 hours, he has said, or maybe two days, I'd just rather be dead. I'm like, this guy just, he was really not handling this well. Yes, you know, and, I, and to get real for a minute, I can't say I've never, I remember in high school, I had thoughts like that. I've, had, I've dealt with things like that before. But, you know, if there's anybody listening to this, I don't 
think anyone in this room, but if anybody's in here or somebody on the video, life is worth it. You know? Life gets tough. Yes, life gets hard. There's, there's things that are going to happen. Life is a precious gift. You know, that's something a lot of people aren't being taught anymore. Life is precious. Life is a gift. Life is something worth fighting for. No, not to get on my huge tangent for a minute, but this is kind of my stand on abortion. Is that life is worth fighting for. Worth trying for. That's why I have such respect for moms that sometimes find out that their kids either going to be born with defects or with issues, or maybe when it's even like, it could be either you or the baby, and they still say, go for it. Women like that are special. Women like that have the right idea about life, but that's the thing, is just life is worth it. And so, going on, it says in verse, chapter 4, verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even unto death. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I killed one of Dana's plants that she's trying to grow right now. Yeah, I did. I killed one of her plants. Word of advice to all the husbands. When your wife says, give me garden soil, don't do it three or four days later. Um, probably do it the same day or the day after. But yes, I successfully killed off one of her plants she was growing. Oh, sorry, two. I killed off two of them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Dana was a little bit frustrated with me. I don't think it was to the point of death. That's pretty That's pretty severe to be so mad over a plant that you're... Yes, it's... God, I am angry about this plant that's been here one day. To the point I'd just rather be dead. <laughs> but this is the part, and this is what I want to leave everybody with. But the Lord said... You have had pity on a plant for which you have neither labored nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished again in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, a great city, in which more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern their left hand from their right and much livestock? Think about this for a minute. God called Jonah out and said, You are so angry that this plant died. But you're looking at a city with 120 souls in it. And you don't even feel pity. He said, you would rather me destroy this city with 120,000 people than this one plant. That's God's heart for salvation. God wasn't trying to kill off Nineveh. Now, sadly, you know what? I think it's the book of Nehemiah. Later, Nineveh went back to their old ways, and they were later destroyed of their own choice. But God wasn't trying to get Nineveh. God offered them mercy <laughs> to the point that he took Nineveh's side. I want you to think about this. God took Nineveh's side of the argument. Think about this in a courtroom scenario for a second. You have Nineveh. You have Jonah. And you have, obviously, a judge in a typical scenario. But God is taking none of his side saying, but they have changed. They have repented. They deserve a second chance. Now, God's the judge. Normally, the judge doesn't take a side or should, in theory, take a side. But God said, look what 
what they've done and they've changed, I want to give them a second chance. You've got, the governor has given you a pardon. If anyone's watched Old Westerns, my dad loved Old Westerns. You know, you've gotten pardoned. God pardoned Nineveh and took their side when Jonah was like, you shouldn't give them a second chance. And God said, but I'm going to. Think about that. Is there anybody in your life that doesn't deserve a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chance? I'm counting for a minute because second chances sometimes are not just what people need. I think, what is it God says? Forgive them 700 and 400, let's see, 70 times 7, 490 times. If you have to forgive somebody 490 times in a day, okay, you might, might need some work on that. You know, that person might need a little work. But think about that for a minute. God isn't just big on one and two chances. If we think about it, God's giving his things. It sounds like, you know, God gives 470 chances, let's just say, put a number on it. So how many people in your life just need that other chance? And God gave chance after chance. Look at Israel. God gave chance after chance after chance. To this day, the nation of Israel is still not even, there's some laws in the nation of Israel right now that don't line up with God's word. You know what God's still doing? He's still giving them a chance. What's he doing for all of us? He's still giving them a chance. Who else in your life needs a chance? For the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, however many times. Is it is it your kids? Your parents? Your husband or wife? Your uh, your neighbors? Your friends? Maybe your boss. You know, who lives wrong with you? Who's, who's not acting right? That still needs God's mercy and still needs you know, we're to be a reflection of God. If God can forgive people like that, we should be able to, too. Now, I want to put the little caveat with this. That doesn't mean sometimes if somebody's really done something serious, sometimes, yes, maybe they don't need to be in your life as much. But that doesn't mean you still need I want to tell you something. You ever want to meet somebody that's really forgiving? I'm going to brag on my wife here for a minute. My wife has had a lot of things happen to her throughout her life. She's one of the most loving and forgiving women I know. There are people that she has forgiven that I still have not forgiven that we've dealt with in our marriage. She is a great example of God's love. And I just, I want to compliment her on that because there are a lot of times I am a very angry person. When we got married, I was a very angry person. I still have anger issues once in a while. If it wasn't for that wonderfully young woman over there, I would still be a very hateful man. And God brought her into my life to show me this kind of love, his kind of love. So just that's kind of the thought I'm going to leave everyone with today. And I'm sorry, I know we kind of ran longer today. Um, but just this really hit me. When you're going through your day and you're thinking about all the different things going on, and you know, we're going to have people wrong us, right? People are going to mess up, you know, whether it's something minor, whether it's something major, people are going to mess up because people are just messy. Take time to think about how many times God has forgiven you, how many times God has forgiven people, and think about the fact that God takes the side, usually, of the person that's messing up if they repent. And he'll still give them another chance. And God is always giving us second chances. 
I'm really glad God doesn't only offer so many chances because I'd be in trouble. Like really, if God had a kitchen, uh, yeah, let's just not picture that. Um, really, I'm glad that God's mercy is never ending and his love unconditional. That's the kind of love and mercy we need to have. So anyways, I, I appreciate you guys letting me keep you a little later today. I, and I'm sorry, I wasn't, wasn't quite planning on it. Um, but just take that home with you this week. Just think about that. Just who in your life just needs needs that other chance? Who maybe needs that phone call saying, you know, I know you've messed up. I know we're not on great terms. I still love you. Give you. And God loves you, too. Sometimes people maybe just need to hear that, whether it's your family, your friends, your spouse, your whoever. Somebody might just need to hear, I love you, not giving up on you, and uh, praying for you. So, Father, we just thank you that, Lord, you just help us to see your heart for people. Father, when you look at people in our lives, you see something different than we do because you look at the heart and you look past all the exterior, all the mess. So, Father, I thank you that you were just going to help us to look at people with that same way, the way you showed Jonah how you looked at people in the story, where you saw people and you wanted them to repent, and when they repented, you showed them mercy. So, Father, I thank you just give us that kind of a heart. I thank you that as we go about our day, you're just going to open our eyes to different ways we can do this. And just thank you, Lord, that we just have a great, another great week. Thank you, Lord, that the churches are getting back open. I thank you that we can meet again. This is, this is such a blessing, Father. Lord, we just thank you you're with us as we go throughout our day and our week ahead and bring us back home safely next week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You guys have anything you prepare for? Uh,